0: Acts 18. After these things, the Bible says, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew there named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles." And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, who was a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul that night by a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So let's think about these first 11 verses in this chapter of God's word. I want you to think about how common it is And in in what variety, by words or by circumstances, that discouragement comes into our lives? The thing about discouragement is that it comes to all of us, that we are universally prone to it, and it is a universal experience that all of us have from time to time experienced discouragement. Some more than others, but we all know it and are prone to it. Now, discouragement, at first glance, it just, you know, it's sort of a broad term because it seems like, you know, you could be discouraged and then you can be discouraged. And it's the same word, but emphasis and you know, facial expression and circumstances would would tend to, to guide you to the difference between minor discouragement and major discouragement. Let me give you a good definition. If you have your listening guide, you can pull your listening guide out. Those first blanks are the definition of discouragement. Discouragement causes, first of all, ingratitude for the blessings of yesterday. What happens with discouragement is that we we miss, you know, we're discouraged. And so we we, we don't see the things that have happened to us in the past as a blessing. We miss the blessing because discouragement puts us in a negative uh, framework, a negative mindset. And then we become, it gives us indifference to the opportunities of today. You know, when we're discouraged, we're not looking for opportunities. We're not thinking positive thoughts. We're thinking negative thoughts. We're in a funk, if you will. And then there's insecurity concerning strength for tomorrow. So, you can see how all encompassing discouragement can be. That it affects the way we see our past, the way we experience our present, and even the way we look towards the future. It comes to all of us. And it's something that we should fight. It's something that, as believers, we should fight with every fiber of our being. It's something we need to resist, we need to resist it like sin. Because although we all get discouraged, it's not God's will for us to be discouraged. And discouragement will lead us into places that God doesn't want us to be and cause us to do and think things that God doesn't want us to do and think, which is sin. And so we need to fight against it. I want you to see that in verse 1, it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and he went to Corinth. Now remember, Athens was the... Was the intellectual capital of the world. And Paul uh, was alone in Athens. He stood before the Areopagus, so he he had an opportunity to speak in front of the most powerful sort of ruling intellectual body, if you will. Uh, there wasn't great, there wasn't a great response in Athens. It was a, a difficult time for him. He leaves there and he comes to Corinth. Now, if you're just remotely familiar with the Bible, you have if you've ever looked at 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you realize that uh, they were definitely a wild bunch that had a lot of problems. Corinth was a very, uh, very different place than Athens. Athens being the intellectual capital of the world, Corinth being the sin capital of the world. Corinth was a much, much larger city, 650,000 people. Of those 650,000 people, probably 400,000 of them were slaves. Only probably 250,000 people would have been free citizens in Corinth. There was a a lot of debauchery going on in Corinth. Sitting over the top of Corinth uh, would have been the great temple dedicated to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sex. Every evening, 365 days a year, over a thousand temple prostitutes would descend down from that temple into the city to practice their trade This was the kind of place that it was. Uh, It was sort of the... uh, It was the Las Vegas of the ancient world, you could say. It was notorious for its immorality. The word, uh, even the use of the term uh, Corinthian came to mean not necessarily a person from Corinth, but a person who was known for sexual immorality. And so Paul is discouraged. He comes into this place. He's already had a difficult time in Athens. Uh, He's surrounded by uh, all of this chaos around him. And he's he's discouraged. We'll see in this text this morning that the Apostle Paul is not um, immune to discouragement. Think about all the things that get us discouraged. Boy, it's it's easy for me to talk about discouragement because I get discouraged from time to time. So I, I think about how sometimes physical exhaustion, uh, fatigue uh, will lead me to a time of discouragement, make me feel uh, and start to think negative thoughts, uh, think, uh, things, think of things as unpromising. Sometimes frustration leads to discouragement. Sometimes uh, you're trying to accomplish something and you just can't seem to uh, get it to work out. You just, uh, sometimes we get discouraged with our work. Sometimes we get discouraged with our family. Maybe you get discouraged with your marriage or you get discouraged with your kids. There's lots of things that uh, can bring discouragement into our lives. Sometimes we get discouraged because we feel a lack of success. We, we don't see things as panning out the way we expected them to. Our expectations have let us down. And so we move into a time of discouragement. And then there's fear. Fear takes hold and can cause discouragement. Fear can make us worry. It can make us angry. It can make us apprehensive. And so all of these things and many other things can lead us into a time of Discouragement. Now, we know a lot about what happens here in this season of Paul's life because Corinth ended up becoming a very pivotal place in his ministry. He wrote the book of Romans from uh, Corinth. He, he wrote 1 and 2 Thessalonians from uh, Corinth. And then we also have the two letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, that tell us a lot about this. So, for example... In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul tells about when he came to Corinth. And he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. He was down when he walked into Corinth. And this text makes it clear. So here's the question we're going to ask this morning. How is God faithful when we're discouraged? That's our question. How is God faithful when we are discouraged? Not... Is God faithful when we're discouraged? And the answer is yes, but that's not helpful. We need to know how. What we need is some practical help in our discouragement so that we can see the way in which God is faithful so that we can then uh, use what God will teach us this morning to walk through our own seasons of discouragement. Okay? So we need this this morning. This will be helpful. You need this. I've been praying for you that God would use this mightily in your life. Number one, how does God? how is God faithful when we're discouraged? Number one, through friends who care. Through friends who care. Now, no doubt a great source of discouragement for the Apostle Paul was the fact that it was his own people. It was the Jewish people who were uh, so uh, determined... To reject him and his message. And that has a, a, no doubt a cumulative effect. He goes from place to place to place. From synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. And over and over and over. It's his own people. The people that, that if you were Paul. You would think would be the most prone to listen to you. Because you understand them the best. And yet they were the ones who oftentimes were his fiercest adversaries. In verse 4, you see, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. That's the same word, really, he reasoned that we talked about last week. And then verse 6 starts out and says, but when they opposed him and blasphemed. See, they didn't just oppose, they weren't just against him, but it gets personal. And they're, they're just, uh, they're, they're very aggressive and very, um, uh, you, you know, Paul had become familiar with this Jewish Merry-go-round, if you will. That's what I call it. It's like the merry-go-round of persecution. Paul goes into a city. He goes to the synagogue. He starts teaching. The Jews get riled up. They would uh, start a big ruckus, get the Jews all stirred up against him, saying that he was uh, teaching or preaching something against Uh, what ought to be. Then they haul him off to court. Then they beat him, throw him in prison. And it's sort of the same thing. He knows this routine. And so it's wearing on him. He's, He's, my goodness, he's tired and frustrated. And here we go again. And when he walks into Corinth, he realizes what he's up against. When he looks around at all the blatant, rampant immorality... He's just, he gets discouraged and realizes, my goodness. And you can see his frustration at the end of verse 6 where it says he shook off his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. He is frustrated. He says, I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. So it tells me that uh, at least a portion of his frustration had to do with the Jews. And the Bible says in verse 2 that he found a certain Jew named Aquila. Born of Pontius. Who had recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Hmm. So you see, these people come to him. This is the first time we're introduced to Aquila and Priscilla. These are two people that if you know your Bible, you know will come up many more times. They become very prominent people in the Apostle Paul's life very important, and he brings them up many more times in the future. And the Bible says they were of the same trade. They were leather workers. We translated tent makers. Paul did make tents, but he wasn't just a tent maker. That word really means he's a a, a leather worker. The tents were made out of uh, goat hides, and it was a good trade because Soldiers all used, carried around leather tents to sleep in. So there was always a need for those. And of course, every Jewish young boy had to have a trade. Whether they were a rabbi or not, they had a trade as they were growing up. And so that was Paul's. And so he meets these people who do the same thing. Now this is what I want you to see. These are new friends. These aren't people that he knew before. These are people... Uh, I think they're uh, saved people who have been displaced from all the chaos in Rome. Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and so they all had to move. So these people had left uh, the little group of, of believers in Rome and come to Corinth. They're doing the same thing that Paul is. They meet each other. They probably met in the synagogue. They become friends, and the rest is history. So what I want you to see is that when we're discouraged, sometimes what God will do is He'll send new friends. New friends. With a connecting point. Hmm. You know, some of you uh, are sitting around people that you have a deep and abiding love for. And the way that you gained a deep and abiding love for those people is because you sit where you sit and they sit where they sit and if you sat over there and not over there or vice versa then you may not know them but you've come to know them and love them because you sit in the same place now I also want to encourage you that there's probably other people in this room that you could have Maybe even a greater, deeper, more abiding love for it. But you'll never meet them if you never move from the place that you're in. But I just want you to see that a lot of times God brings people into our lives, new and wonderful people and relationships into our lives through circumstances that we think are just totally unimportant. That maybe we, uh, you know, we, someone gets hired on at our company or in our office or We meet at some, you know, you're at the park with your kids and there's someone else there with their kids and you become friends and the next thing you know, one thing leads to another and you develop this wonderful friendship that will be a lifelong friendship. Connecting points. And God brings new people into Paul's life in his struggle and in his discouragement. You know, he was alone in Athens. He was trying to carry on alone in Corinth and that just doesn't work. Being alone is not God's intention for us. We're not made to do life alone. And being alone has a cumulative effect. I happen to be a person who likes to be alone. And I've always said that I'm somebody who's perfectly fine with myself. But I also know that it's not good. And that being alone too much is not healthy. And it has a cumulative effect. So... For me to be healthy, I need to be alone some, but I can't be alone too much. Because what happens is, is that it starts to uh, wear on me. Some of us think we can carry on alone all the time. But I want you to know you can't do that. You weren't made that way. It will never be that way. You will never be able to carry on Alone, You can't do it. It's, it's not God's purpose and plan. And here's why. Because first of all, we were created by community. You know that? We were created by community, in community, for community. Now here's what I mean by that. We were created by community because in the creation narrative, we're created by a God who's in community with Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by a triune God. We're created by community, in community. We're created male and female because it's not good for man to be alone. And we're created for community, which is the bride of Christ, the church. So we were made by, formed in, and created for community. Every level of our existence is meant to be experienced and understood and known through the process of community. So what God does is He brings new friends into Paul's life. Maybe this morning what God is wanting to do in your discouragement is to bring new people into your life. You need to be open to that. You need to be aware that God is placing people around you. That if you take the time to get to know you may love very deeply and be loved by them very deeply. But he also, he also brings back Paul's old friends. Look at verse 5. Then Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia. And Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now, these are two people that are extraordinarily close to Paul. And Paul is no doubt very encouraged by their arrival and their presence. And here's how I know that. Because I know that the deepest, most abiding relationships in our life are formed through suffering together. That there's no closer bond than a friend who suffered with you. Now you think about Paul and Silas and and Paul and Timothy and how they've Uh, grown to love each other they've been in prison together they've been beaten together they knew what it was like to suffer together they've been in jail together they have suffered time and time again city after city and Paul knew how much they loved him and they were they weren't like out on you know break while Paul was discouraged in Corinth they were doing what Paul had called them to do They had gone and checked back at the church at Philippi and went back and checked at Thessalonica. And so they were bringing Paul reports back that he had requested from those churches that they had planted. And so he was so glad to see them. And they didn't come back empty-handed. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about this moment when he says this in verse 9. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one, for what I lacked the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. In other words, Paul goes into Corinth and he's bivocational. He's, he goes back to making tents. To He's alone to support himself. But when Silas and Timothy show up, they bring an offering that had been taken up by the churches of Macedonia so that Paul, that's why the Bible says he then turned all of his attention to the gospel once they came because he no longer had to make tents because he could then spend all of his time preaching because they brought a gift, a financial gift of support from the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and more than likely Berea. You see, imagine what it meant to Paul to see his old friends come back. And then to find out that those churches that Paul had planted, those people that he had labored with and for, were thinking to themselves, there's Paul out there by himself alone laboring in the gospel. What can we do? And if you know anything about the churches of Macedonia, you know they were dirt poor. Dirt poor. And yet they took up an offering out of their poverty to make sure that they were able to encourage Paul, and that Paul could prioritize the gospel. You see, a real friend, a true friend will always prioritize the gospel in your life, will never stand in the way of what God is trying to do in or through you. And so there's just this perfect illustration of this beautiful bond and how they loved Paul and encouraged him. Paul was compelled by the Spirit. It means he was literally occupied by the Word of God and the Gospel, and devoted himself totally to that. And so, what we need to realize this morning is that we all need friends, all of us. And I don't think that any of you in here this morning are necessarily rejecting that statement, but I think there's levels at which we receive it. Now, I happen to be an expert on this topic, an expert. Because in my flesh, I could be very resistant to this. Before God saved me, I was very socially awkward. I was very withdrawn. I uh, have always been a person who uh, all of my life growing up only had and wanted and would allow a very few people to be around me and be close to me. And so my nature is to withdraw But you see, in Christ, I've come to know, and it was really one of the first areas of my life that God had to to break in me, was my need for friends, my need to allow people in, new people in, different people in. And that was really one of the defining marks of my early journey with Christ was just this, you know, openness of doing things with people I didn't know and realizing that in doing so wonderful things can happen. You know, one of the first uh, things that uh, happened to me was that uh, my wife swindled me into going uh, uh, going to dinner at somebody's house in the church. So this was my first endeavor socially. You know, I sat in the big room, didn't talk to anybody, didn't want to talk to anybody, didn't look at anybody, came to church, sat, listened, left, that kind of thing, didn't go to Sunday school at first, nothing. So... My first social endeavor was to go over to these people's house that I didn't really know and to go over there and have dinner. And I didn't really know what I was getting into, didn't know who all would be there, how many people would be there. And so when I got there, you know, I was a little bit uneasy and and uncomfortable. And I was thinking this week about how uh, it was at that dinner party that uh, I met one of my closest friends that I have in the Lord. A a, a twenty five year friendship that remains to today. But at that moment, him and his wife were there, and that and and we began to talk, and and you know he began to share with me. He he didn't know if I was saved or not. He knew this was all new to me. He could tell that. But we ended up sitting in another room, and he talked to me for a while, and we fellowship together in the Lord, and. Uh, and they're this bond out of nowhere. Uh, but I think about that. And I think about how God used that so mightily in my life. And then over the subsequent 25 years, how God has filled my life with so many wonderful relationships and friendships that, you know, apart from Him, I would have just missed out on all of it. The Bible says in Proverbs 17 that, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I love that verse because the paraphrase of that verse is that the way you know a true friend is that he's your friend when you're moving. That's how you know. (laughs) Because when you're moving, that's when you don't have any friends. Amen. You know, man, everybody loves you until it's time to pack up and load boxes. But uh, your true friends will be there when you're moving. And this is the thing, is that every single one of us comes from a dysfunctional family. All of us. Don't look at me like you're offended. You came from a dysfunctional family. How do I know that? Well, because. Because of original sin, we all come from dysfunction. We all inherited brokenness from past generations. Uh, We all are continually molded and shaped and influenced by a fallen world. And many times that has a lot to do with our propensity to be discouraged. So I want you to think about this. Because we're wounded in community, we will only get healed in community. You see, you weren't wounded alone. This is what I know about you. You didn't wound yourself. That's not how that works. You were wounded in community. You were wounded by community. Some of you in the room were wounded by your parents or wounded by a family member or wounded by uh, uh, an organization or wounded by uh, a group of people or wounded by a church or wounded, whatever it is. But here's what I know about your wounds and mine. They happened in community, and God's plan is to heal them through community. And they're never going to heal on your own. You can tell yourself until you're blue in the face that you can lock yourself in a room with your Bible, and you can convince yourself that you're going to spend time alone with God and spiritualize it, and it's you and the Holy Spirit in your prayer closet with the door slammed shut, and this, that, and the other, and it's never going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's unbiblical. That's how I know it's not going to happen. You're not going to get healed alone. You weren't wounded alone. And in order to fully heal, you're going to have to be healed in community so that you then understand that community is not your enemy. Here's what happens. When you read the Scripture, you realize that when the real gospel, the right gospel, the genuine gospel permeates our lives and the people we're around it births a community that is getting well together that's what happens that's why so many of you your story is is that you came to michael and you and when you plugged in here you got healthy Now, you might tell the story and say, well, I got healthy because I was under uh, biblical preaching. Or I got healthy because I got into a great Sunday school class. Or I got healthy because, and a lot of those things or all of those things may be true. But you got healthy because you got in community. And if you came and you sat and you listened and you leave, then you don't get healthy. That's not how it works. It's never worked that way. It's not God's intention. It never will work that way. So how is God faithful when we're discouraged? Well, through friends who care. Secondly, through fruit we bear. Through the fruit we bear. He's faithful in that. Now, I want you to think with me about Jesus and the way He dealt with the disciples. Remember how John chapter 14 begins? The famous passage, "'Let not your heart be troubled.'" You know, the very last part of John 13 is Jesus again telling the disciples that He's going to leave. He's going to die. He's going to be crucified. That there's going to be a huge transition. That there's going to be difficulty ahead. That everything's going to go haywire. And then He says to them, let not. He commands them. It's it's not some good sounding advice. It's a command. Let not your heart be troubled. Because he knows that what's around the corner, what's coming, is an opportunity for them to be riddled with fear. For them to look around with their physical eyes and see that the entire mission and everything that they thought was going to be had imploded around them. And it was a total disaster. He's going to hang on the cross. It looks like it's over. And he says to them, let not your heart be troubled. What? Believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What he's saying is that the solution is to believe. Now here's, here's what I want you to see about what Jesus is trying to tell us here and in a million other places that so helps us in a time of discouragement. The paraphrase of John 14:1 is this. Don't let your hearts be ruled by what you see. Let them be ruled by what I promise you. That is the message that Jesus sends in John 14. And every time that he encourages his disciples about the hardships that are ahead, he's reminding them not to dwell on what they see. Don't let your circumstances determine your spiritual health. Focus on what I've said, not on what you see. Focus on my promise. Now, what was his promise? Well, then, if you just keep reading in John, you know that then right after that, Jesus makes this glorious promise. He says, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Now, they're going to need that, right? Because there's coming some dark, dark days, and they're going to have to be reminded that if we just have to abide. We have to abide in Christ. We have to abide in Him and His Word. We have to stay grounded. Now, take that thought, and let's bring it back to Acts 18. Look at verse 6. So when they had opposed Him and blasphemed Paul, he shook off his garments and said, Your blood be upon your heads, for I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles. This is a dark moment in Paul's life. This is a di- His circumstances are telling him everything's wrong. Nobody's listening. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not being fruitful. I'm not being productive. I'm totally discouraged. Everything's a disaster. It's a failure. Don't look at that. Remember God's promise. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Now, the very next verse, look at verse 7. So he leaves in this dark moment. He leaves, and the Bible says he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who was a worshiper of God and whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now, now listen to me. God is doing something great here. Paul doesn't see this. He's discouraged, but he's abiding in Christ, because what is he doing? He's remaining faithful to speak. He's remaining, he's continuing to tell people about Jesus, but he doesn't see the point. He's not seeing this as being fruitful or good or whatever the case may be. And then, then he immediately leaves there, and this man happens to be a follower of God and happens to live next door to the synagogue. So he goes into that house. And then look at the next verse, Crispus the ruler of the synagogue. Now, we know Crispus is not a Jew because Crispus isn't a Jewish name. So here's a man who has become a follower of Judaism and risen up to be a leader in the synagogue who wasn't born a Jew, became a Jew, and now is leading in the synagogue. He believes in Jesus. He believes the message, him and his household. And then the Bible says many Corinthians. Well, well, because what you have is you have church now set up, not down the street, around the corner, out outside, the, but next door to the synagogue. God gives them the house next door. The the, the lead the ruler of the synagogue is converted and then comes next door, and they start having church right there. That's what I call much fruit. And what I'm telling you is is that what would have happened if Paul would have just said... I'm done with all of this. I'm done with you. I'm done with God. I'm done with everything. But he didn't. He just kept abiding even though he was discouraged, even though his heart was breaking, even though he didn't see anything positive coming. Believe the promises of God that even when you don't think God's using you, you don't know what God's doing. You don't know what He has in store for you. You don't know who's listening to you. You don't know who's watching you. You don't know the impact you may be having and this has played out in my life a thousand times where you get discouraged and you just think you know why am i killing myself nobody's listening nobody's moving nobody's nobody's growing nobody's changing but i just think i got to keep abiding i got to keep abiding i got to keep abiding And then suddenly, sometimes it's the next day. Sometimes it's the next month. But then out of nowhere comes this encouragement in the midst of discouragement. Where you see that, yes, God is working. That He is faithful. That His promises are true. That things are happening. But we can't get lulled to sleep by our circumstances. It's so important to understand this. So how is God faithful when we're discouraged? Through friends who care. Through fruit we bear. And number three, through fellowship we share. Through fellowship we share. Verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Now look look at what the Lord Jesus says to Paul. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now we, the, the, the clue that tells us everything that I've been teaching you this morning is in that statement right there. I know what was going on with Paul by what the Lord said to him. Then we can just follow the breadcrumbs backwards and sort it all out. God wouldn't have said something if it wasn't relevant and pertinent to the situation. Amen? Right. Now, I want you to notice some things about what the Lord says to Paul. Do you notice that the Lord didn't say no one would attack you? He didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, don't worry, no one's going to attack you. (laughs) Because that certainly wouldn't have been true. He didn't say that. He said, when they attack you, I'm not going to let them hurt you. That's what he said. He said, hey, I'm not going to let them attack you to hurt you. That's encouraging, especially when you're discouraged, when you, when you know that you're on this merry-go-round of persecution and that it's just the continual cycle of, you know, I preach, they get mad, I get beaten, thrown in jail, here we go again, around and around we go. And Jesus goes straight into his discouragement. And he, he shows us how, again, Isolation is the primary tool used against us in discouragement. You see, we see God send Aquila and Priscilla into Paul's life. We see God reunite him with his old friends. So he gets new friends, he gets old friends. We see that happening. But now we see it addressed specifically in what God says. Again, because when we are discouraged, we are most oftentimes Isolating ourselves and prone to isolation in our discouragement, which is what we ought not to do. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says, for I am with you. So he first addresses fellowship on a vertical level. He says, you're not alone. We have fellowship vertically. We're together. But he also ends by saying, for I have many people in this city, meaning I have many other believers, people that are going to come to faith in Christ, horizontal fellowship, people that you're going to get to know, people that... So it's not just vertical, but horizontal. It's, it's I'm with you, and then there's others around you that I've put around you, that they're both critically important and inseparable in nature. You can't separate the vertical and the horizontal. People try all the time, only to their own detriment. People say things like, well, I just really don't want to get to know anybody. See, I know, I invented that statement. That was my motto. Okay, honey, I'll go to church, but I'm not talking to anyone. No matter what, not talking. If I just don't say anything, if they ask me a question, I just look at them like they're a moron. They won't ask me any more questions. I mean, I had a whole strategy worked out. And of course, the church wasn't nearly this size back then. So, in a church this size, it'd be very easy for you to slip in, slip out, float in, float out, never connect with anybody, stay isolated. See, sometimes we feel alone and isolated. Especially when we see the wickedness of the world all around us. Or when we're being persecuted for our faith. Or our position or our stance or our convictions. I want you to think about, uh, again, let's think about Jesus' words and how all of this ties together. Remember when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment in Mark chapter 12. He said... Well, first of all, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember that? The great commandment. And the second is like the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know what that is? That's first the vertical, and it's second the horizontal. And you can't separate them. He didn't say, now here's the greatest commandment, and then here's, you know, sub-commandment B. No, they're both the great commandment. Vertical relationship, horizontal relationships. You can't exist without both of those, and one cannot be healthy without the other one. If one's unhealthy, the other one will be unhealthy. You will hurt the one if, if the other is unhealthy. It will always be that way. And it drives me crazy that so many people walk around and have broken horizontal fellowship and they think that they have good, healthy, vertical relationship with God and they're wrong. That's wrong. That's not true. I tried harder than anybody has ever tried. Trust me, it doesn't work. It'll never work. It can't work. They're inexplicably intertwined together and inseparable. What we often think, even the people who are somewhat have somewhat of a theological understanding of this principle think that well if i have a healthy vertical relationship then i'm in a position to have healthy horizontal relationships and that's true but it's also true the other way around and that one reflects on the other And so all you need to know is wherever your weakest relationship is, then that's indicative of both relationships. I can tell you don't believe me. Luke chapter 6, look at this verse. It'll come up on the screen. I know this is familiar to you. Verse 38, Jesus said, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. You know that verse, right? What is that verse saying? With the measure that you measure horizontally to the people around you, what? God will measure vertically to you. You cannot think that you have a healthy vertical relationship if you have unhealthy horizontal relationships. It won't work. God will not speak to you and minister to you and work in your life the way he wants to because you're unhealthy horizontally. It's the measure here that determines the measure here and the measure here that determines the measure here. And those two things are connected. Amen. Amen. You've got to know that everything in and of this world wants to keep you in a place of discouragement and wants to hinder, which is why so oftentimes we would, most most of the testimonies in this room would be. that my greatest struggle is not fellowship with God, it's fellowship with others. Right? Sure. Because it's far easier to have a relationship with someone perfect than it is to have a relationship with imperfect people. There's an imaginary story about Uh, what would happen if the devil decided to have a garage sale? Which I think all garage sales are of the devil, so I like this story. (laughs) Just want to throw that out to you, Lisa. Many of you in here have bought in all of my prized possessions for pennies of what I paid for it and the value that I saw in it because it was sold at one of her notorious garage sales. Usually when I'm faithfully serving God on a foreign mission soil somewhere. So you can pray for me because I get discouraged about that from time to time. I come home from the mission trip and I'm like, what happened to all my stuff? Praise the Lord. So the devil has this garage sale and on the day of the sale... All the devil's tools are laid out on various tables. And every tool was marked with its sale price. And there was a lot of ugly implements strewn about the place. Hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, lust, lying, pride. All of these different tools were laid out and on display for people to come and purchase. But apart from the rest, sitting over alone by itself was a harmless looking tool it looked like it couldn't hurt anyone and yet it was different than all the other tools it was it was far more worn out from use and upon closer inspection you could see that it had by far the highest price of all the tools that were for sale so one of the customers said to the devil what's the name of this tool To which Satan replied, well, that's discouragement. So the man said, well, why do you have it priced so high? And the devil said, because it's more useful to me than any of these other tools. He went on to say, with this tool I can pry open and get inside a person's heart even when I can't get at him or her with any other tool. It is badly worn because I use it on almost everyone since so few people know it belongs to me. See, When we're discouraged, we oftentimes think that it's due to all sorts of other things. And we get fixated on all the things that we think have caused us to be discouraged or what the source of our discouragement is. But it's not of God. And it's not for the child of God to be discouraged. It's one of Satan's favorite tools, and when it comes into the life of a believer, it's going to cause things to happen that ought not happen. But the good news is is that God has a cure for our discouragement. that rather than focus on the things we see with our eyes, we can focus on the truths. That God has promised us and the things that the Lord has done. He has a cure for our discouragement. And the cure is the gospel. The fact that he sent his son to die on a cross for our sin that we might find forgiveness. That he rose from the dead to give us victory over that sin. That he gave us his spirit to live within us so that God could then bear fruit through us. So that even in seasons where we thought things weren't going the way they ought or should or could or even needed to go. That we could live our lives with victory over discouragement because of what God's promised us. So as we look towards the Lord's table this morning, let's let's walk into this moment with this truth lingering over our heads Jesus experienced God's absence so that we could rest in God's presence the table represents God willfully and joyfully receiving God's absence so that me and you would never have to do that never So if you're here this morning and you find yourself in a place of discouragement. Come to the Lord. Be reminded of all that He's done. Realize that this morning He's brought you to church on a day where we celebrate what He's tangibly done for us. If you don't know Him as Savior, then this is an opportunity for you to receive Him. And participate as part of his family for the very first time. If if you have not been baptized, then you need to be obedient to what God's called you to do. But know that we're here this morning as a community the way God intended. That's why this is not something we do at home by ourselves. We don't get baptized. I don't come to your house and baptize you in a bathtub. And I don't come to your house... And have the Lord's Supper with just you and your family. That's not how it works. We do it together in community. Because that's what God intended and commanded for us to do. Because we need each other. Because we all get discouraged. But because God has a solution. He's good and faithful to us in the midst of our discouragement. So let's stand and bow our heads as we have a time of response.